Well, uh, if you were here last week, you remember that we started a series in John called Come and See, or just see, really. Uh, But we talked about last week how John invites us to come and see this person of Jesus. Uh, But he says that what I want you to see that's at the very sort of focus of my letter is this man from Nazareth called Jesus. And if you'll remember, we said that John wants his readers and you and me today to live with eyes wide open as we gaze at the person of Jesus through John's Gospel. And so, John actually tells us that he writes so that we might believe that Jesus is in fact who he says he was. Because, in the end, as we said, the most important thing that you'll ever have to deal with is coming to terms with who you think Jesus is. It is the question with whom and about whom we all must close. And no matter what you will believe about who Jesus is, you will believe something about Him. We're spending all semester long, hopefully, therefore, seeing Jesus on display in John's Gospel. That's what we're going to look at all semester long. Now, I want to begin tonight by telling you a little bit of a story. Um, For those of you that don't know, we have three little girls and Our three-year-olds right now, we have twins, are really into princesses and princess dresses and loads of pink at our house. And one of the things that um, a family member got for them over Christmas was amazing. Listen to what they got. They got storybooks of the Cinderella story, of uh, Sleeping Beauty, of, uh, shoot, what's the other one? Oh, Ariel, Little Mermaid. And, yes, Frozen, little storybooks. But Disney and the Disney publishers are running a racket. Because let me tell you what they're doing. They have these books that you can put your children's name in as part of the story as you read it. So it opens like this. Now, Ariel used to live under the sea, and her best friends were Audrey and Evangeline. And the girls just perk up all of a sudden, because why? Because their names are right there in the story. Now, why do I share that with you? Well, I'd like to say this. Maybe the publishers are on to something here. Maybe, just maybe, they understand something not just about little girls, but all of us. Here's what I mean. Haven't you ever read a story or watched a movie and it so resonated with you that you longed not just to watch it or to hear it read, but you wanted to actually be in it? That you longed for that story to actually be your story. There was such goodness and truth and beauty in it that it almost made you weep. Perhaps it did, because it... It got so inside of you that you wish you were inside of it. You see, perhaps you resonate with the great great author, uh, a man by the name of G.K. Chesterton, when he said this. He said, I have always felt like life was first a story. And if it was a story, there must be a storyteller. You see, I think some of us resonate deeply and most profoundly with it. That is why the writer, J.R.R. Tolkien, he once wrote about fairy tales, and he said that every mark of a good fairy tale is what is called, big word, put on your thinking caps, you catastrophe. 
And his point in saying that was is that a catastrophe was, quote, the consolation of the happy ending. If you've ever read a fairy tale, how does the fairy tale end? And they lived? That's how it goes. That's the catastrophe. It's the turn, so to speak. It's the surprise in the story that comes that you never expected and will never occur again that can almost take your breath away. He says, and I, I want to flip it up on their screen, but I don't have my clicker. Aaron, do you have that? There we go. Um, this is what he says. He says, It is the mark of a good fairy story that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it when the turn comes catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears as keen as any form of literary art. Have you ever sensed that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Such is the power of fairy tales. And yet, even after we read such a story, guess what? We have to close its pages, put it down, and go fold laundry. You know what I'm talking about? You see, even the best Disney stories, they come up short. Why? Because the little girls still sit outside of it, longing to get in, not just read it. Well, y'all listen. When John wrote his gospel, people were experiencing something of this longing. They had the story that God would one day come again to rescue and to redeem His people. They knew from the beginning that it was not always so. You see, man was once with God and God with man and all was right. But, as we've come to know through the years in RUF, due to man's longing to want to be God, we were, as it were, we were thrust outside the story. And y'all listen, every man, woman, and child, every day since that has ever lived, lives with this echo of this beautiful story deep within their hearts. It's a silent, deep desire to get back into it. Well, listen. What if I told you tonight that right here, John tells of the definitive action of God to fix that longing. John tells of the incarnation of the Word of God. In other words, the coming of Jesus. And do you know what that great story writer, J.R.L. Tolkien, says about the incarnation? Here are his own words. Are you ready? Look up at the screen. He says this, The birth of Christ is the catastrophe." of man's history. Think about that. The entirety of history is summed up in that wonderful turn of events where God comes and He enters the story. In Jesus, y'all, we see the hero coming and what heroes do. So I want you to see tonight. Did you see it? What does John tell us about this hero? Turn your eyes to verses 1 to 5. Do you see it there? He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Y'all, what I want you to begin to see is, is that John begins his letter by telling us about the Word. Now, there is more in these first five verses than five sermons put together. But I want you to see that John is telling us about who Jesus is. John picked up a word when he's talking about the Word, the Word, the Word. If you were a contemporary of Greek philosophy in that day, that was a common word in everyday parlance to talk about this divine reason, this mind of the universe. It was an impersonal thing. And it was the very sort of way that everything's were held together. 
And John picks that language up. And he actually says, that Word became flesh. That Word is God Himself. And in the beginning, the Word was. You see, what he is saying, John is highlighting this pre-existence of Jesus. Did you see it there in the beginning? Picking up the language from, where else have you heard? Let me just ask. Where else have you heard the language in the beginning? Right there in Genesis chapter 1, right? John's taking that language again and saying, as it was then, so it is now. The Word existed. The Word existed. That Jesus was there. And John says that Jesus was there when the worlds were formed. Also, John highlights the divinity of Jesus by saying that the Word was God. He wasn't just merely with God, but He was God. So in this few short verses, as you can see, we see that Jesus has always been. That He was never created. He made the world. And that in Him, in Him, all things, all things shine bright because in Him is the light that is the life of men. Jesus, John tells us, was God from the very, very beginning. And now, that Word is come. Listen, John is telling us about the identity of the hero. And why would this be so, so incredibly important? Well, think about this. Ladies, imagine your roommate comes home uh, one day and says, Oh my gosh, I met this guy and he's so great. You need to go out with him. Okay? And it's, she's trying to work this blind date setup thing. Okay? And, and, and she's like, He is great. You're going to love spending time with him. He's going to be wonderful. And you start to say, Okay, well, I mean... Tell me a little bit about him. Like, what's he like? And she's like, oh, he's super great. Listen, he doesn't have any teeth. He's anti-antiperspirant, okay? His pastimes, they involve massive credit card fraud and torturing bunnies, okay? And then most of all, he loves the Baylor Bears, okay? Right? Now, I share all of that with you. Why? To say this, a person's identity really does matter, right? I mean, who somebody is really does matter. Somebody It will determine our relationship and our devotion to that person. And have you ever considered, therefore, that John is telling us that Jesus is God Himself? John comes right out of the gate with it. He finds it so important that he begins his letter there. In other words, listen... John starts his letter, are you ready for it? With deep theology. Profound theology. And the reason that is so important is because I actually think this, that you and I both need this desperately today. You see, could it be perhaps that one of the reasons that you feel stuck or tired in your spiritual life is because you have, for whatever reason, chosen not to examine and deal with what the Bible actually says about the person of Jesus. Hear me out on this. That is called doing doctrine. Doctrine is essential. And every time you speak about who Jesus is, you are doing doctrine. Theological content really matters. You cannot grow in your love for God and for others, apart from mining the depth of what the Scriptures say about who Jesus actually was. Now, I know as soon as I say that on a college campus, somebody goes like this, ah, 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 Ryan, Mm -mm, nice try. You see, doctrine is divisive. 
We don't like that. I want you to just give me Jesus. That's all I want. And I actually say, but would you consider perhaps that as soon as you open your mouth about who Jesus is, you are doing doctrine. You're doing theology. Now, others are going to say, hey, I'm just looking for a religion that makes me feel good. And that's why I like Jesus. You see, so don't, don't worry about doctrine. And I just want to say, I hear you. I hear you. Okay? But what do you do with Jesus' words Himself? You know, the Jesus that we want to like because He's so cool and kind and homeboyish, right? Because He says this to His disciples. He says, If anyone would come after Me, I don't know, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. I mean... Those aren't exactly easy words to swallow, right? And they're on the lips of Jesus. You see, all of this leads us to seeing that John wants us to know who Jesus is. Without it, without it, without knowledge of who He is, he will, we will never believe in Him the way that He longs for us to take Him. And that is by deep heart trust. But John isn't content with telling us simply, y'all, who Jesus is. Because what good is it to know who a person is if we don't know what they're actually up to? If we don't know what they're up to? Well, John jumps right into this in this second little passage here in uh, verses 11 through 13. Turn your eyes there with me on your sheet. Do you notice this? That John says that he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John is telling us something about the amazing effects of Jesus coming. John tells us that when Jesus came, not all received Him. They didn't all welcome Him, but some did. Others did. And those who did, y'all, were given the highest blessing you could possibly receive in this life. And that is the blessing of being adopted into God's family. What does this mean? Well, at one's conversion, God becomes to that individual a father. A father. And they, His child. We who were once orphans and not His children we are now given that highest privilege of being adopted into His family because of the great love that He has for us in Christ. He allows us the privilege of calling Him Father, of having Him as our Papa. Now, I don't know about you, but that's amazing stuff. It's incredibly profound. Now, it does raise a question though. If you're smart and you're listening, you might be asking this. You might be saying, that doesn't mean if you're not asking this, you're dumb. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Let's not do that. I just mean to say this. It's a great question if you're asking, well, wait a second. Um, aren't we all God's children? So that's what I always heard all my life. Like, aren't we all God's children? So why are you saying, Ryan, that at conversion, somebody is given the privilege of calling God Father? And I want to say to you, that is a fantastic question. And I'm going to answer it. And I know the target's going to be painted on my chest. But I want to teach, teach you what the Bible says. The Bible actually nowhere speaks 
nowhere speaks in any way that those who are outside of Christ have any privilege of calling God their Father. That's a hammer. That is heavy. The closest the Bible gets is in Acts chapter 17 where Paul is speaking to people in Athens and he calls all of mankind his offspring. But that is spoken of more in the sense of God being an omnipotent creator. And in that sense, we are His offspring. But the privileges of being in the family are to none but His children. Those that He has worked in to convert and to regenerate. And what this means is, is that the intimate familial language of calling God our Father is one of the deepest, highest privileges that we have when we become Christians? So the simple answer is no, we're not. The fatherhood of God is something given to us at our conversion, not by nature of being human. And that is a distinct teaching of the Scriptures. One author puts it this way. Put on your thinking caps for a moment and listen to the ramifications of this. He says, to substitute the message of God's universal fatherhood For that which is constituted by redemption and adoption is to annul the gospel. That's strong language. It means the degradation of the highest and richest of relationships to the level of the relationship which all men sustain to God by creation. In a word, it is to bribe the gospel of its redemptive meaning. And it encourages men, and this is key, y'all, it encourages men in the delusion that our creaturehood is the guarantee of our adoption into God's family. That's strong language. That comes from a man named John Murray. But listen, the way, therefore, to the Father's heart is straight through the Son. And John says that whoever have received Jesus have the highest of privileges of calling the triune God theirs and to look at the father and say intimacy familial relationship look y'all i don't know if any of you in here have actually been adopted i i was not none of my siblings were we don't have any adopted children but for those of you who were or are familiar with adoption know that when a child is adopted as a legal child of a family all of the rights and benefits of that family name are passed irrevocably to that new child to that child that that is wonderful news it is stunning news you can't get rid of an adopted child ever and that's what is john is trying to get across about what is given to us in this wonderful doctrine of adoption a few years ago i saw a video and it was a young couple about our age Uh, My wife and I's age, they had little children, but they had a caretaker who was like 19 years old. She She was a ward of the state for all I know, and she was in her adult life now, and she was a caregiver to their children. And there's video, and you can go YouTube this. There is a video of them sitting her down, having their monthly review about her staying in her house, and you know, that sort of deal. And they sit down with her, and they sort of say, well, we've thought about it over the next few months, we want you to stay, but you know... But I want to tell you something else. Um, We've decided to adopt you and to make you our own and to have you as one of us and to welcome you into our family and to watch this young lady 
just break. She's your age, y'all. She's 19 years old. To just break because she now has a family. You see, do you know yourself to be an outsider? And then to be welcomed into the very heart of God? That's the promise that John is saying right here. That we have been received. That we have, the, we have received the right to be called a child of God. That is fantastic news. And what that means is this. If you are a Christian, do you know that you have the Father's smile? You remember the song we sing? Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what Father's smiles are thine. Do you know that if you are in Jesus, you have the very smile of heaven? Your heavenly Father greatly delights in you as His child. That is fantastic news. The matter is settled. You are delighted in by God. That is the privilege of your adoption. In Jesus, God smiles on you. And the smile isn't contingent on your behavior. While our obedience certainly pleases the Lord, God doesn't smile on us so that we'll clean up, so to speak. He delights, I mean, He doesn't, he doesn't smile on us when we, uh, so that, let me put it this way. His smile isn't conditioned on us cleaning ourselves up. He smiles on us when we're hot messes. You see, so therefore, when, you, when your life is falling apart, and you think, what can God have to do with me? My life is a train wreck. You can remember that God took you in when you were a train wreck. That's precisely what He does. And if that doesn't cast you out, what will? There's a secure grasp. The family name is upon you. And J.I. Packer wrote this wonderful, wonderful quote when he says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook of life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. What about you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what it means to be a child and to have your father be God himself? That's what's on offer here. You see, John is telling us in short that we become God's children through Jesus. And John is showing us, therefore, why Jesus came. He came to give us the right of sonship to you and me. And when He did, we are made forever His, never able to lose the family name or rights that come with it. That is profound news. But did you notice, though, in this text, how He did it? Did you know, how did He do it? Well, did you see there in these last little bit, John 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. I want you to see that this is very, very important language that is being used here. This idea of coming and dwelling with us. Now what John is saying here is that all of God's glory is now fully on display in the person of Jesus. That all that God is has been wrapped up, as it were, with skin in Jesus. This is very interesting. Because, see, if you were with us last semester as we considered the book of Leviticus, you remember us talking about the temple a lot. Remember what happened in the temple, in the tabernacle? What happened was, was God's presence was there. And also what happened in the temple, not only was God's presence there, but this is where sin was taken care of. 
You see, God came to dwell, in other words, with the junk of His people. And because there was the junk of His people, what happened in the midst of that temple was there was a lot of death. Blood was splattered everywhere by animals, bulls and goats, you'll remember, to mark a symbolic atonement for the sins of God's people. What's very interesting here is that John is saying that God literally came and tabernacled with us in the person of Jesus. That He came home and He lived with us in the midst of all of our junk. You think you got roommate problems? Let me tell you who's got roommate problems. Jesus has got roommate problems. Because He comes and He deals with us in all of our stuff. And yet, for Him to deal with us, you might think, well, wait a second, for God to be with us and for us and our junk, there must be blood. There must be death. And what happens? Don't you see that in the person of Jesus, it's not the people's blood that's shed, but it's His, so that He may dwell with His people. That's the beautiful picture that you get in Christianity. It's this wonderful, wonderful picture that God has come, that He has come to dwell with us, y'all. Greatness has come near. I don't know how many of y'all saw this a couple of weeks ago on, uh, on the internet, but um, there was this like uh, uh, quattro, uh, the foursome, this band, and they were in the subways of New York playing, and people were just sort of gathering, and they weren't paying much attention. And then the band broke out in this U2 cover song, and began playing it. And people kind of you know, looked up. And then in about 10 seconds, what happened was, was the lead singer pulled off his hat and ripped off a mustache, and it was Bono. And then the Edge pulled his uh, toboggan off and ripped a beard off, and he was just jamming out his guitar. And the whole band was sitting there playing in the midst of the people, and people were flipping out. They're like, oh my gosh, it's you too. They're right here in the midst of us. The greatness has come near. (laughs) And I want you to see in the incarnation that God has come near for us. That the greatness has come near. That He's come to dwell with us. To deal with our brokenness. To deal with our shame. To deal with our sin. In other words, what you get in the incarnation by God coming and dwelling with us is that you get a God who actually understands what it means to be human, y'all. And that is massively uh, consoling for us. Because listen to what the Scriptures say. Hebrews says this, that therefore He, Jesus, had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people before because He suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted as well. I don't know about you, but what does it do for you to know that Jesus is one that had skin on and knew temptation. That He knew struggle. That He knew sorrow. Is that not massively comforting to know that we have a God who can relate with our human experience? That is profoundly what we get in the Gospel itself. John is showing us that Jesus comes and dwells with us in history and in suffering. And when He took it on, He took all of it on, y'all. Not just the pretty parts. John is showing us how He makes us His children. And He actually does it, y'all, by dwelling with us. He dwelt with us. 
So, the incarnation shows us something incredible. It shows us that all that we instinctively thought about how relationship with God is had is actually, listen, entirely wrong. It's entirely wrong. You see, many will think that relationship with God is had by our moral performance. That if we stay away from the bad people or the bad things, God will finally have us. Others think, you know what? If I'm just the most accepting of other people, then God will be happy with me and accept me. And still others say, you know what? You've got to chart your own path to God, man. And I want you to see that the incarnation shatters all of those approaches, primarily because they're fundamentally flawed because of this. They all assume that you can find your way to God. And what lies at the heart of the incarnation, and here's my main point, I'm driving home all night long, that God has come to us. That this God has come to us. When we were helpless, when we were going our own way, when we really didn't care a thing about God, He sought us out and rescued us. He is our hero. He is our lovesick prince who goes out and dies for His beloved. We're going to watch a quick video clip, not something I do much, but I think it's powerful. I'm going to set it up. There's a filmmaker and he has a brother who's an actor in this movie. And one of the extras in this movie is his brother's girlfriend. Okay? And what you're about to see is amazing. I'm going to come back and offer comment on it, but think about it for just a second. They're making a movie, and then something happens. Watch. Um, Bennett, will you fade that light down, just that, that, that bar? Will you push it down? Here we go, y'all. Let's watch. If it doesn't move you, you don't have a soul. <laughs> I simply want to ask you, what do you think Christianity is all about? You think it's about a lovesick prince who breaks in to rescue his bride? Here's the picture. They were play acting. They were play acting. They were living in a make-believe world. And guess what happened? The real broke in. The ultimate broke in. And all of a sudden, this woman was lifted out and brought into that which was real because a lovesick man came after her. If you know what Christianity is about, you just saw it right there. Listen, God is showing us in Jesus that we're no longer outside of the story. All of our lives, we've been, we've been in a lesser story, play acting and making believe, but there comes a moment when Jesus comes, when the real breaks in the play acting and takes it up. This is what God has done. He makes us His own by living with and dying for His children. Here's the best news. Y'all, this ain't no fairy tale. Or better said, it's the true fairy tale to which all other fairy tales point. In the incarnation, in the crucifixion, and in the resurrection of Jesus, God has come and swooped us up in His arms forever. And we will live, yes, with Him, happily ever after. Let's pray.